Hi, my beautiful people. This is Spill With Me, Jenny D. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so excited. I've been wanting to do this for so long. I'm giving you a real big hug right now. I don't know if you can feel it, but I'm giving you this big hug because I feel like everybody needs a hug or a, hey, you're doing great or you look nice or just compliment each other. I mean, see, I felt like I needed to start this because I've been running into so many people that just want to talk about their life experiences, the relationships or like any story they needed to share. This could be something magical or something they wanted to share, but they're afraid of what others would think, me included. Or if you're hurting inside or have a funny story about life lessons you'd like to talk about, I would love for you to reach out. This could be the worst or your best times. Listen, I have some good topics. We're going to have a lot of fun because I believe the best medicine is to talk about it because someone else is dealing with the same shit. beautiful people. This is a new episode with Spill With Me, Jenny D. And I was talking to my mom. She works for hospice. She was like, Jennifer, why don't you do a podcast on hospice? And I thought, well, do people really want to talk about it? She um, had me line up with Rebecca here. And I'm so excited to talk to Rebecca because Rebecca knows all the ins and outs of hospice and what it means. So Rebecca, say hi to the listeners and tell us your title. Hello, everybody. I am Rebecca and I am one of the bereavement coordinators for Allegheny Health Network Hospice. Um, Well, it's healthcare at home hospice. I oversee, I'm actually a supervisor as well. So not only do I do bereavement coordination, but I also oversee the volunteer and bereavement departments. Okay. Now, how long have you been doing this? I've been with this agency for six years and a couple of months, and then I was with a different hospice for 16 and a half years as a volunteer coordinator. Okay. Now, tell our listeners, what does the word hospice mean? So, way back in 1999, when I first started my job as volunteer coordinator, I had to, you know, start learning all about this and training volunteers coming in. So, what I had read way back when, and what I had told people for well over a decade, so I hope this is accurate information, is that it der- it's a derivative from the word hospite which was, if you ever read the Canterbury Tales, like the weary travelers that would, yeah, so the weary travelers who would walk through the, you know, the English uh, hillsides going from one spot to the other. Hospits were places where they could stop and kind of rest, recover, and then, you know, continue on their journey. So hospital and hospice both are derivatives of hospit. Okay. So when I think of the word hospice, I think of somebody coming in and taking care of your loved one at their Mm -hmm. house, Mm -hmm. or could this be anywhere? It can be anywhere. So in the United States, you know, hospice came to the United States uh, in the 1970s. It was originally, it was founded in England originally, and a, a hospice was a place where people would go to live with a quality of life through the dying process. When it came to the United States, it also started that way. Everybody, there was an inpatient hospice, so it would be people going to that place to live that quality of life while they were going through this terminal diagnosis, going through the dying process. As, you know, healthcare changes in the United States, so 
it made sense to start reaching out into the community as well because not everybody wanted to move to a different place. The whole right. purpose of hospice is, you know, again, focusing on quality of life. So if somebody wants to die in the place that's most meaningful to them, they should be allowed yes. to do that. Uh, but a lot of people come onto hospice already living in personal care homes, assisted living, right. nursing homes. And then, of course, we do come in and, and provide care to people in a hospital setting as well. Right. Because do you say, like, I guess you would say that some of the hospital, the nurses and doctors, at that point, they can't take care of the patient as far as they can't give them any medicine or anything like that? Well, what it really comes down to is, you know, again, a, a personal choice by that patient or by the family member if the patient can't speak for themselves. They just want comfort measures at that point. So they're not trying to actively cure their diagnosis. And when I say actively, focus on the word cure, the, right. the diagnosis, because we are actively treating pain and symptoms. Um, so it's not like we're sitting back doing nothing, allowing this people or this person to just go through the dying process. We right. are actively treating symptoms, but trying to keep them comfortable. I was going to say, I mean, this is probably a question you really can't answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Okay, <laughs> sure. With a hospice patient, have you ever had one that you, not you personally, but, but the company or the agency put them on hospice mm-hmm. and they ended up not needing hospice in? Correct. Yes. Oh, yes, that happens happened? a lot. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those I, are those are live discharges. Yes. So wow. people, if they come on with the the mindset of you know, okay, this is the the last phase of this disease right. process, but you know, they end up the disease isn't progressing. One time, I had a um, a patient that I used to go and visit with her because we needed a volunteer to go in. We didn't have a volunteer in that area. She was on our hospice for five and a half years with ovarian cancer. Now, normally, normally end-stage ovarian cancer, and when I say normally, you know, yes. I mean, the, the average is not five and a half years wow. from diagnosis to, to death. But she she was a trooper. She even got pneumonia in the middle of that, went to the hospital. We thought for sure she wasn't going to make that. She did. That's amazing. She was discharged, went back to a, a nursing home. I started visiting with was her she when she was older? at home. Yeah, older. she was in her 60s, not so much older. No, but. please, not that I'm 50. Yeah, right? No. <laughs> <It's young. laughs> right, right. So I started seeing her while she was at home, and then she had to progress to go into a nursing home. But um, she really did have an amazing quality of, of life for yes. those five and a half years. That is so amazing. I yeah. love hearing stories like that because you don't know. And I think a lot of people, I'm speaking for myself right now. I shouldn't be speaking for other people, but I feel that when we, somebody says they got hospice, oh no, mm-hmm. that means they're going to be dying. Soon. Right. Right. You know, I think that's what a lot of us, you know, take with that word hospice. Well, I think that maybe, yes, that's, that's a mindset, but I think maybe the reason for that is the, the stipulation to bring somebody onto hospice is a life expectancy of six months or less if this disease is left untreated, you know, for, right. for curative purposes. Right. Now, that six months or less is within reason. That certainly is not always the case. Um, so if we get people referred to us early enough and if people are in that mindset of, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to continue to go to dialysis or I don't right. want to do chemo or radiation treatments, whatever it is, if they're deciding they no longer want to try and actively cure that, 
and they say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I want to choose comfort measures and I want to live my life with a quality of life on my terms. Okay. The disease may not progress. You know, right. they just don't know. They just you don't know. know. The science right. in, you know, I'm sure you know this being in the health field, that it can change. Absolutely. You know, yeah. you do, everybody's different. Everybody has a different diagnose that they're going to either progress or actually it may just, you know, I don't know if it would go away, but sometimes it just, it not stagnates, but it can, it's not progressing at the rate that you would expect. It is like that, that one patient that I was talking about (laughs) five and a half years. And you know, I have to say one important lesson that I learned long ago, because I tell you, I never intended on working in hospice, never. My, my own father was on hospice when I was 23. I was going a very different route going into politics and government and, and uh, when he passed away. And when I came back and went to grad school, I went for um, public administration, public policy, and then I continued on and got my second master's in public health. So I took advantage of going to a lot of the different medically inclined classes. I thought that I wanted to go back into healthcare policy once I got back into government. And so I had the privilege of going to the University of Pittsburgh is where I went. And I got to listen to a lot of um, seminars through the law school and the medical school. They had like this combined, these combined classes. Yeah, like curriculum that was focusing on medical ethics. So I went and listened and and Dr. Bob Arnold was at the forefront of um, palliative care and hospice, especially in this region. And he was talking about doctors not referring patients early enough. And, you know, families, this is back in the the very early 2000s, um, saying, you know, doctors don't want to refer because they feel like it's a defeat if they refer people to a hospice. Um, And that... I thought about it that way. Right. And that patients and families also feel the same way, like, oh, I'm surrendering to this disease process. And he said, what people need to understand, both doctors and and patients slash families alike, is that when you elect hospice services, you're not giving up, you're not throwing in the towel, you're simply shifting the focus of the fight. And that is truly what we see all the time are people who are fighting to live a quality of life on their terms and not surrendering to this disease process. Yes, I like that, shifting the focus of the fight. Mm -hmm. I really like that. That's exactly what it is. And I think that, you know, by us talking about this, I think that it is going to make people more aware of what you do and what we do for people that are, you know, sick. Now, yeah, give us a little bit of a background about what you've been doing and what, um, because you worked up the ladder or did you, were you a volunteer at first? I was never a volunteer. So what happened was I graduated um, with my first master's degree and I, I took a position. First, where, how many do you have? I have two. I have two. <laughs> public administration. I have and a master's public. degree in podcasting. <laughs> no, I just have two. But when I, when I graduated with my first degree, I had taken a job with, at a location where I had interned while I was in that program. Okay. 
and I was only there for three months due to budgeting reasons. Three of us had to go. I was the last person hired, and I had a master's degree, so I kind of, yeah. Yeah, they're like, bye. Right. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't have the funding exactly to cover that. So while I was looking for jobs, one came across my desk, basically, that was for a volunteer coordinator in hospice. Well, my dad had been on hospice. I'm so sorry. So, well, thank you. It's It was a really good thing for him to have, though, and an amazing thing for my mom, because my dad was only 61, and my mom was 59 at the time. Oh, so, my God. Yeah, so she was continuing to work, and I was living in D.C., working for the government, and my other siblings were around but scattered. My sister was in Florida. So I... Um, I saw this job and I thought, eh, okay, I'm going to apply to this. I can do it for a very short period of time until I really decide what I want to do. I cannot express to you what, how freeing, because to be quite honest, after my dad died, I'm a bit of a type A personality, so I tried to over-control everything in my life. That was my automatic reaction to grief. That's your, like, defense. It was. And so I didn't understand about healthy coping and healthy coping skills and recognizing what can be a healthy coping skill at first can turn into something that's not very healthy. You know, counting calories and exercise became my go-to because I could control that. And so when I went into this job in hospice, I really started to learn about me by just simply walking through the door and being completely present to other people and leaving myself at the door right and being and again letting it go leaving it at the door and just being there for somebody else right. listening to their journey um, supporting them and you know so many hospice patients they're not focusing on death and dying right they're focusing on the life that they have today and they want to talk about their life and they want to share their life and they want to learn more about you and see that is so wonderful right right so as a volunteer coordinator I again got to go visit with a lot of patients with volunteers and by myself and it was life-changing for me it it took those tendencies of mine and Finally, I said, oh, that's what I was doing. It's like an awakening for you. Yes, yes. It was a huge awakening. And now in a role where I'm supporting people through the grieving process, so I'm not out there on the front lines visiting with patients and taking volunteers out. I still do training and... uh, Play, well, I don't even want to say placement. I still to the do. Families or I speak to them after. Well, unless somebody needs uh, help with anticipatory grief, which is a request by the hospice team at times, is for me to get in on the front end before they pass away uh, to support the family. But normally, my my interaction now is after the patient passes. Okay. So I'm doing the grief support. Every hospice in the United States does about a 12 to 13 month support after the patient dies. Oh, see, I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's part of Medicare's requirement. We have to be available to people because and see this is the difference between somebody dying in a hospital setting right. without hospice or just, you know, dying without hospice and right. somebody who does have these services. I have so many people from the community call me say, you know, my my dad just died in the hospital. I'm not dealing well. They referred me to you. Because not only are we available as a grief support to our families and and loved ones of our patients that we had, uh, but we also offer, every hospice does offer out to the community as well. Right. 
they don't get the same level of support. And this is not coming down on the hospitals. They just don't have that built-in uh, yeah, part of right. the team that's really the, the grief support part of the team. Yeah, and if you so. think about it, Rebecca, when you when someone... You, when you know they're going to go in hospice, mm-hmm. you kind of have that mindset, okay, I know they're going to be dying. Right. You know, or like you said, the other patient, you know. But with somebody dying in the hospital that maybe was fast or yep. wasn't expected, yep. it takes someone like a really long time to really process it because mm-hmm. everything is going too fast and you can't sit down and realize, like, oh my gosh, yep. I just lost my loved one. Yeah, exactly. And that makes it, even though it's not part of the risk assessment per se of, you know, when we look at loved ones who have just, who are about to lose somebody, we do something that's called a risk assessment. So what's going on in this person's life that may complicate their their grief? Uh, And that is certainly one thing that, especially with COVID, (laughs) especially with COVID, uh, where people couldn't go and sit with somebody um, and hold their hand and tell them that they love them and be there in person. Yeah. And they couldn't do funeral viewings and they couldn't do funerals. And so many people had to be outside at the cemetery. It was a, there are lasting lingering effects of that. And so something like a quick death or a complicated death, this COVID thing that nobody anticipated. No. Right. So we had to up our game in the, the grief support end of things because, you know, normally we reach out to people, we call them, we check in on them, uh, we send them mailings, and then they're welcome to call us anytime. But we really had to increase our support to people across the board because not only were people, you know, we, we did have people on our services that had COVID and, and died from COVID. Oh. But more than that, I mean, there were probably 10 times as many people dying from something else, but those families were limited. They couldn't go and be with those those patients, those loved ones. They couldn't have the funerals. So it wasn't just for people who right. dealt with COVID directly, but it was the lasting effect, the, right, on the, the ripple effect. That not having right. that closure or that, you know, I know some people don't call it celebration, but of their life, yes. having yes. funeral or um, just having a viewing or anything like that. And it's almost like you feel like you were robbed of that during mm-hmm. COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't see why people can't do services later on. You know, I know a lot of churches will, um, somebody will say like after a year or right. six months, can you do a, right. a blessing for my loved one? But I really do believe that, you know, do it, do it now. If you can't, if you couldn't do it during COVID, do it now. And yes, that is that is something that people have been doing. The, the thing is, when you're dealing with grief, I truly believe that sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, that service, that celebration of life, that memorial, that funeral service is the very beginning. That's the opening of the door of the healing process. Right. And when that's delayed for a year, when it's delayed for six months, it can cause complications that nobody really saw coming. Right, Um, exactly. Now, everybody has their own individual way of dealing with things, obviously. Um, But those are the kinds of things that we needed to be looking out for and still do. Right. Because, you know, again, we lost so much at that time. We lost our very sense of freedom, you know, and 
through no fault of anybody's. Right. I mean, it, it was we were what it was. So scared to be around yes. people because you were yes. so afraid you were going to get your loved one sick that was already having some complications. Yeah, it right. was definitely a weird time. Yeah. And I do believe that, like you said, when the loved one loses someone, mm-hmm. and I think that you know, with hospice or the hospital, as soon as you lose them, you're already. I got to find a funeral home. I've got to find right. this. I've got to right. find where I'm going to bury them. And you can't process. Mm-hmm. And then after it's all done, you don't think about that person, like, reaching out to them or mm-hmm. saying, hey, how are you doing? Like, sending flowers and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, you're doing that out of kindness. But mm-hmm. really, the best thing to do is to talk to them. Make right. sure they're okay right. a week or two later. Yep. That's it. And, and you know, the biggest thing to help people through grief is support. It's right. one of the three main things, you know, of course, your own coping skills, the external support that you get, and then usually a faith base is the third thing, you know, believing in something beyond this world. Right. Um, those are the things that help us through. And, yeah, it just became a very complicated time where we by nature felt like we had to isolate more. I mean, not only were we being told we had to isolate more, but people were really, I can't, I can't have people in my house because, you know, I, I'm I'm so afraid. I don't want to get them sick. I don't want to get sick, whatever it was. Um, So we we're still dealing with the lingering effects of that. And with the volunteer, more open now, it is. Yeah, it is. And so for the volunteer end of things, which is really supposed, well, but that's supposed to be kind of, I didn't even know like that I could volunteer my time. I don't think a lot mm-hmm. of listeners, you know, they're like my father-in-law's retired and mm-hmm. people retire. It's like, hey, and you have your mom here. So, right. I mean, it's so nice <laughs> that she volunteers. Yeah, I have roped her into volunteering <laughs> since 2003. She didn't have a choice. <laughs> she did not have a choice, no. She retired and then she became a volunteer. Aww, um, yeah, and she used to go out and visit with patients, but, you know, she's 86, almost 87 now. So She looks wonderful. Uh, yeah, people say that all the time. She, she is. She's a very strong active person but yeah she elects now to be more on the administrative end of things so she comes into the office and helps us with that yeah but volunteers really you know they they started hospice so way back when in 1967 or whenever it was that hospice started in England it was a group of volunteers and so that's why the volunteer end of things has remained such an important component of hospice and they help to fill in the gaps So just going and visiting with somebody, especially in a a facility setting when the family has to go and work. Right. You know, that's usually why somebody's in a facility, because there aren't available family members who can be there 24-7 to care for them. them. Um, So sending somebody in just to, to... be a companion to listen. No, do you have to sign up to be a volunteer? Yeah, so okay, all volunteers... Pro- protocol? You do, okay. um, yes. So Medicare made that very clear way back when. Volunteers are to be treated the same as staff. So all the onboarding uh, that we do COVID for testing. staff... It's not just the COVID testing. It is... We do background checks. So everybody that comes in as an employee, they have to do all the different, you know, various steps for background checks. TB testing is a requirement. Um, We have to do the the flu vaccination. You can either elect to do it, and we can provide that, or, you know, you elect not to do it, but you have to sign a waiver that you're not getting the flu vaccination. You know, again, very much being treated like a full team member is... Right. 
part of what comes along with being a volunteer. Um, How would somebody listening right now said, you know what, I really want to volunteer. I want to be there for people, especially people that don't have loved ones visiting mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. during the day. And this is at what, there's different hospital well, we facilities? Cover, oh, yeah, and no, there's not different hospice facilities, so we take par- care of people in uh, I want to say eight or nine counties. I would have to count them all up in yeah. southwestern Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. okay. uh, yeah, we're all over the place. So we care for people in their homes, in guild nursing facilities, so nursing homes, assisted living, personal care, uh, and then in the hospital. So That's right, because you already told me they don't have, the, it's like a hospice hospital. Or no, so there used to be inpatient units, uh, and they have slowly been closing and, you know, I think the hospital setting is people, they, they try to have beds in a, either in a skilled facility or in a hospital that particularly is for end of life care. Right. So they try to make those rooms feel a little bit more comfortable and like home, Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and a little less sterile right? Than, than what you would normally get in a hospital setting. So. Now does hospice, do they take care of the bed and, or is that something that goes under insurance. So there's a, a Medicare benefit for hospice whenever somebody comes on, um, and it's anything that's directly related to that diagnosis. Okay. So it would have to be, you know, it, we can provide a hospital bed if it's something that the diagnosis is requiring that this person can no longer get up and they need to um, have a, a specific type of mattress so that they don't have skin breakdown. Right. You know, that's all included in, in the coverage. That's wonderful. I mean, for you to have that, you go to college and you're going to do something, and then all of a sudden you realize this was your calling, mm-hmm. and how you—I mean, <laughs> yeah. think, you're totally an angel. unexpected. You are an angel. You are. I always call my mom that too. I'm like, you are all angels, helping and just being there for people. And I can just tell, like, the way you are. You're just so soft-spoken, and you know, you you give so much compassion. And I feel like those people. They needed that, mm-hmm. and whenever you're talking to the families, they all we all need that oh, to just feel you. at ease that our loved yeah. one is being taken care of. Yeah, it's um, I guess maybe it is a calling. I don't know to go from wanting to be in yeah. politics and government to this. Um, right. And you know, I do have to say, I worked for the federal government for a period of time, and I felt so distant. Like, I'm how am I helping people doing what I'm doing? But this, yes. this is like, this is serious frontline. You know, you are making a difference every single yes, day. Yes, you are. And for me personally, I feel like why else would I be here? You know, right. just here on this earth if I'm not doing something productive on a daily basis. Exactly. So, And I feel like as much as like with doing a podcast, I felt like we do need to talk about these things. Because mm-hmm. these are things that a lot of people just want to like push under the rug or, oh, I don't need that right now. Mm-hmm. But knowing that there's volunteering out there. Mm-hmm. There's what else can people do to help out? Um, I mean, just being really open to letting people know what hospice is all about, so right. that it's not something to be feared. It's it's really not something to be feared. This is truly, if I could express enough, how it is really about a quality of life and allowing people to maintain that quality of life and to you know, just live out their days the way that, that they choose to. And, you know, if somebody wants to go on vacation and they're on hospice, they can go on vacation. Right. We, you know, we can make sure that 
if uh, they need a hospice on the receiving end, let's say they're going out of state. That's all, you know, we do have a hospice team. So I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but... No, tell us okay. about the hospice team. Okay, so everybody that's included, all the different disciplines that are included is nursing, CNAs, so certified nursing assistants. They're the ones that go in and help with the personal Planning, care. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and then there's social workers, spiritual care coordinators, the volunteer department, and the bereavement department. I did so, not know that there was all these. Yeah. So you get an entire team of people. Wow. And it's up, to, it's up to the patient what they want. Really, the only thing they're required to to receive is the nursing visits. Um, and I believe even that, you you don't have to have them. I mean, it's, it's not like you have them every day anyway. There's a frequency with which the nurse comes in right. depending on that patient's needs. So you may get two nursing visits a week. Uh, you might have, you know, two or three aid visits a week, and then the social workers coming in as needed, and the spiritual care coordinators available. That's amazing. I, these are things that I would never even know, mm -hmm. and I, you know, fortunately haven't had to use hospice for any of my relatives. Mm -hmm. I did with my one recently, but you know, I just kind of went in there. I didn't really see the hospice volunteers mm -hmm. or anything. I just knew he was on hospice. Right. So I just, you know, I thank you so much for just giving Absolutely, us, you yeah. know, the insight and knowing that it's okay to talk about it. And mm -hmm. yeah, you may not have somebody now or you, you know, even for yourself, if you feel like there's someday that when you have that, you want to feel comfortable in your home, mm -hmm. you have that option. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the team, the team really does work with people to make sure that they're getting what they need. So if somebody wants to stay in their home, they will do absolutely everything that they can to, to help that happen. Yeah. And it's, you know, and for them to see their grandkids or, you know, to see mm -hmm. family members, like mm -hmm. that's, that's what you want. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be just sitting in the hospital or sitting somewhere where you don't see anybody. Right. You're isolated. Right. So the service and the angels that you bring into <laughs> all of their lives and in their room, I'm just, I just feel like rejoiced about that, yeah, I mean, there come a time when we don't know what's going to happen, mm -hmm. and but we know that we're being taken care of. Yes. By wonderful people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if they, if there's anything... If they can contact uh, the facility or any, contact you for... So they would anything? contact us. Yeah, if okay. somebody wanted to volunteer with us or get more information about hospice, they can contact us directly, you know, through, again, Allegheny Health Network, Healthcare at Home Hospice. Okay. Um, so we do have a, a home health division as well, so you know, the differentiation between hospice and home health. And they're in, they like you said, they're in different counties, so someone who lives in, like, the South Hills or mm -hmm. they can contact, like, this area yeah no it's all the same place oh it's really? yeah just healthcare at home hospice yep it's oh, it's I our thought there was all individual mm -mm. Okay. no no there's different teams in the different areas but we all you know we have one main I guess hub yeah <laughs> one main hub right exactly that's good that you're all together like that yeah yeah and we interact that's the great thing about hospice teams is there's constant interaction uh, in fact, we have team today, and so the doctor will be here, and the nurses, and the social worker, and the spiritual care coordinator, oh. and myself, oh, yeah, and the volunteer coordinator. Okay. Yep. Oh, yep. that's wonderful. If there's anything else, Rebecca, because I so appreciate you taking the time out to talk Absolutely. to us and to give our listeners a little insight about what goes on mm -hmm. and what hospice is really about. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you would like to say? Oh. 
I just so appreciate you, you know, being open to to talking about this. I think it's important. It's, it's, it's just true. an important part of everyone's journey. I mean, it's the one thing that we can't avoid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? We can't control that and taxes. Right. Um, so, you know, you know, we might as well just try and make it the best possible experience we can have. So yes, thank absolutely. you for, for talking about it. Oh, thank you so much, <laughs> Rebecca. It was so thank nice you. meeting you. My mom you talks too. about how wonderful you are, and she is so right. <laughs> thank you very much. This was Spill With Me, Jenny D. Take care. Thank you so much for joining me with Spill With Me, Jenny D. You can be anonymous, planning on having guest speakers, or anyone who wants to share their life experiences on the topic we covered that week. I'm going to post all that on my Facebook and website, so you will see what I'll be talking about that week. So give me a call. I can pre-record and put you on my, my episode that day. I stress this. I personally feel to heal yourself is to talk about it. And if we can help each other instead of keeping it bottled up and just release it, I think that it's going to help all of us. And let's have a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear from you guys. Oh, I'm so excited. This is still with me, Jenny Dean.